Let's open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 8, the last of several messages in that chapter of John's Gospel. And as we look at the verses this morning, at the end of chapter 8, there is a tremendous promise for us, an especially sweet promise in light of the fact that this week we buried one of our own members. But experiencing this promise, having the right to claim it as your own, hinges on understanding rightly the difference between honor and dishonor when it comes to Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is vital that you understand what it means to honor Him. It's a matter of life and death. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. This comes on the heels of the preceding verses and the disputes that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders about who their father was. And here's what ensues. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Indeed, this morning, Lord, as we have already sung, would you show us... Christ. And would you do all of the preliminary work that's necessary to show us Christ? Would you soften our hearts? Would you unstop our ears that are either deaf or they're hard to hear? Would you open our eyes that are either blind or they still see dimly? Would you come and would you do your work this morning? Would you reveal the glory of Christ? And in revealing His glory, would you reveal your own? 
Oh, how we need to be changed by experiencing Your glory this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So here's the big ideas that I want us to dig into this morning. Three of them. They're in your worship folder. First, this promise that I told you about. Then the second would be the idea of dishonor. And finally, honor uh, or glory as it's also referred to here in these verses. Now again, this promise is only experienced, it's only rightfully claimed if we rightly deal with honor and dishonor. So the promise, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, here it is, they will never see death. Now that's a bold promise. And the degree to which we embrace the truth of that promise has a huge impact on how we live our lives. Imagine the freedom that knowing that promise could give you. Freedom to live your life fully, confidently, without fear. If I had the firm assurance that I would never see death, what might my life look like? What might I attempt? I think the Apostle Paul definitely embraced this promise. As you read in the Scriptures and as you see his life unfold and you see him serve and minister and proclaim with such abandon and with such freedom, even as he's arrested, even as he's beaten and stoned and imprisoned and shipwrecked, and he just keeps on keeping on. He comes so close to dying so many times, and yet what does he have to say about it? That's okay. To live is is Christ. To die, well, that's gain too. He knew that the end of his earthly life would just be the beginning of his eternal life in the presence of his Savior, and he was okay with that. That's a glorious promise. A promise that can give your life such confidence and passion and fearlessness to boldly pursue what the Lord leads you to. Now, the important question is, how do I know if that promise is rightfully mine to claim? We'll look at the verse again. If, there's the condition, if you keep his word. Well, what does that look like? Let me start by reminding you what it's not. That's not talking about obedience. You do not obey your way into eternal life. You do not follow all the rules in order to gain a confidence like that. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we covered this with verses 31 and 32, very similar, where Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. The abide there is the same idea as today's keep. These aren't commands that you obey in order to find eternal life. These aren't rules that you keep. The keeping, the abiding in Jesus' word 
These words that he said about who he is and what he's come to do. Keeping that, abiding in that, means that you believe it. You believe he is who he says he is. You cling to that instead of anything else. You trust in that instead of anything that you think you might have done. You keep his word. But in this chapter of John's Gospel especially, we've been seeing a great deal of not keeping that, of not abiding in that. Rather, we've seen again and again rejection of that. We've seen refusal of that. We've seen repudiation of that. And today, Jesus puts a label on it. It's dishonor. He's had so much to say about his identity, his origin, why he's come. And he keeps getting mocked and scorned and doubted and called a liar. And today, in in the exasperation of of these religious leaders, they immaturely and hard-heartedly resort to personal abuse, to name-calling. They give to Jesus what Calvin refers to as a vulgar taunt. Verse 48, they arrogantly ask, can you just hear the arrogance here? Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and you, Jesus, are possessed by a demon? That lightning did not immediately come from the heavens. What what a bizarre combo of offenses. Why in the world? Samaritans, as we talked about way back in chapter 4, were half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews. They were Jews who had intermarried. They had departed from the Orthodox faith. They had these big fights with Jews over Scripture and over worship, how it's to be done, where it's to be done. And now is Jesus, is he fighting with these religious leaders over Scripture and worship like the Samaritans do? Is that why they use what is in essence a racial slur? Perhaps. But why a demon? Why, why accuse him of being demon-possessed? Well, it's that, it's that they find what Jesus claims and says so outrageous, so preposterous, that the only explanation they can think of, because of course they're not realizing that it's the truth, the only way they can make sense of it is by suggesting that Jesus has been influenced by a demon. These words he's speaking must come from the devil himself. might just be a childish jab on their part since last week in the verses we looked at, Jesus was saying, I know who your father is. Your father is the devil, not Abraham. And so John knows the irony here. Right? There's, there's definitely some folks in this situation who are being influenced by a demon, who maybe even are possessed by a demon, but it ain't Jesus. Jesus calmly responds, I have no demon. And he puts a label on what they're doing. You dishonor me. And it's, their dishonor is all throughout this passage. Uh, we saw it in verse 52 
after Jesus gives this glorious promise of never dying, and they say, oh, well, now we know, right? Before we were just arrogantly asking if you did. Now we know you've got a demon. Verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? And obviously that question, they're not looking for an answer. It's a disbelieving taunt. Jesus again and again has been very clear. He's been explicit about who he is. And if they had had the ears to even halfway listen to what he had said, they could have easily answered that question themselves. It goes on and on throughout this passage, the dishonor culminating in verse 59, when they pick up stones and they're ready to stone the blasphemer on the spot. Now Leviticus 24 tells us that stoning is the proper response to blasphemy, but only at the conclusion of the full judicial process, not to be the action carried out by a mob. Nonetheless, we see Jesus once again elude arrest. He departs the temple. Much like in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord departed the temple. He leaves that day because his hour hadn't come yet, nor was stoning the, the destiny that he was to meet. No, he was to be cursed in our place by hanging on a tree. So you see here the dishonor is great. But these examples are egregious. That might leave us saying, well, I've never done that. I would never do anything like that. But you see, dishonor isn't just wild name-calling or attempting to stone Jesus. No, to dishonor Jesus takes as little as failing to comprehend and recognize the fullness of who He is. If you don't recognize and comprehend that Jesus came first and foremost to be your substitute, to live the righteous life you failed to live, to die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins, if you don't see Him as that, you dishonor Him. If you say, oh, He's a great teacher, if that's all you say, you dishonor him. If you say, oh, what an example he gave to us, dishonor. Even some of the hymns that are in our hymnal, not the ones that I schedule, mind you, but there are hymns in our hymnal that merely speak of him as a source of encouragement, guidance, giving us meaning in life. But friends, anything short of Him being our scapegoat, being the sacrificial lamb that takes your place and my place on the altar, taking our punishment, anything short of that is dishonoring to Him. Now, why is this dishonor such a big deal? It's not because Jesus is been out of shape about it. It's not that Jesus is mad about being dishonored. There's someone else 
much more interested in and passionate about the glory and honor of the Son. Verse 50. I I don't seek my own glory, Jesus says. But there is one who seeks it. And he's the judge. He's the judge. He's he's not going to let these dishonoring ones get away with it. There will be judgment. There will be consequences for not honoring Jesus, for not giving him the glory that he is due. Who is it that seeks the glory of the Son? Well, of course, it's the Father who sent him. Verse 54, my Father glorifies me. The Father loves the Son. The Father delights in the Son. The Father is well pleased in the Son. He's the one who seeks His glory. Now we need to ask ourselves, why does He do that? Why does the Father seek the glory of the Son? Why does He command Expect that we would glorify and honor Him as well. Because when we glory in the Son, when we honor the Son, when we glorify Him, we are also giving glory to the Father who sent Him. We're now in our last half of the third year of our Bible reading plan together slowly working our way through the Scriptures, day by day, chapter by chapter. And I hope that you have picked up on one of the major themes of Scripture. And if you haven't, I want you to start looking for it now, every day. God is pursuing His own glory at every turn. He is worthy of of glory. He is jealous for that glory. And he is pursuing it at every turn. There are a hundred places I could take you to in the Old Testament. I've narrowed it down to three for this morning. This first one harkens back to the Exodus, which is a great place to look, right? Why does God do the things that he does in the Exodus? In his dealings with Pharaoh and parting the Red Sea? Why does he do those things? Isaiah 63. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock, they go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. That's why he did what he did. Another example from Egypt in Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Y'all, even when it comes to our salvation, why send the Son to save us? 
because of some worth or value in us? Not a chance. It's because of His worth, His infinite worth and value. Isaiah, early on, from the beginning of his call to ministry, had a tremendous sense of the glory of God. And we see that again in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Which is what you deserve, but I'm not going to do it. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. And he repeats it again for those of you in the back. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. At every turn, God acts for his own glory. He calls a people to himself and saves them for his own glory. He sends his son to accomplish this for his own glory. And just like we saw dishonor all throughout this passage, we see the glory and honor of the Son as prominent as well. After Jesus makes this bold promise that the keepers of my word will never die, the religious leaders incredulously ask, are you greater than our father Abraham? And so here's their thinking. Abraham received and delivered, if you will, a message from God to his people. Namely, he received the covenant. The covenant promise that he obviously told others about because now we know of it. He had a word from God, but he died. He died. The prophets, they all had words from the Lord, but they all died. And now you're saying, Jesus, you've got words from God, and if we keep them, we won't die? Who do you think you are? Surely you're not greater than Abraham. Well, see, we've heard this question before in this gospel. You remember the Samaritan woman? After hearing Jesus' claims, she said, oh, Surely you're not greater than our father Jacob. Well, as a matter of fact, I am greater than Jacob, and I am greater than. Abraham. Now, Jesus has something really interesting to say here about good old Father Abraham. Last week in verse 39, Jesus said, If you were Abraham's children, if he really was your father, you would be doing what he did. Well, what exactly was it that Abraham did that they should be doing as well? And we see this week in verse 46. Abraham saw the day of Jesus well in advance. He saw it coming and he rejoiced. Now, what is this referring to? There's not one precise verse that we could look to and say, oh, that's it right there, that one verse. No, there's actually a handful of things. Things that are going on with Abraham that help us understand what Jesus is talking about. The first is 
we know that Abraham received some type of insight or knowledge when God made the covenant with him. All right? I'm going to be your God. You are going to be the father of a multitude of nations. I'm going to be their God too. And so I'd encourage you sometime later to read through Genesis 15. Read about how God supernaturally ratified this covenant with Abraham. It's normally both parties are involved, but this is, a, this is an interesting, very one-sided affair. And it's very supernatural how this happens. And so I don't think it's too much of a stretch at all to think that through this supernatural event that occurs, that Abraham doesn't walk away from that understanding things at a deeper level. The second thing combined in this, we also know that Abraham rejoiced when his son Isaac was finally born. Right? This event is, is the provisional fulfillment of the covenant. Right? Because here is the first of his many, many heirs to be born, to make him the father of a multitude of nations. So we know that he, his rejoicing at Isaac's birth is a type and a foreshadowing of rejoicing at the coming Messiah. Thirdly, Abraham had some understanding of his need. He had some kind of, in, deep down inside, he knew there was going to need to be a substitute. He knew, Genesis 22, walking up the mountain with his son Isaac. He knew binding him on that altar, getting ready to obediently sacrifice him to the Lord, this precious son that he waited so long for. And Isaac looks up and says, Daddy, everything's here but, but the lamb. Where is the sacrifice? Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham saw the day of Jesus coming and he rejoiced. This is what the religious leaders should have done. Here Jesus is in their presence. And yet they don't rejoice. They mock. They reject. They say, verse 57, you're not even 50 years old. You claim to have seen Abraham. You idiot. You fool. You weren't alive back then. He's been dead for 2,000 years. Dishonor if there ever was dishonor. And what is Jesus' response? It's a bombshell. It certainly doesn't make things better. It only makes them worse. Before Abraham was... I was. No, that's not what it says. He could have simply said that. But he's not merely trying to claim pre-existence. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And there it is again, God's self-description. That the Jews didn't even dare to say out loud out of reverence. Jesus has used this before, but he's always added something on the end. Right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. But here it is, all by itself, naked and exposed. Nothing to soften the claim that he's making. That I am God himself in the flesh. What honor, what glory. 
yet they pick up stones thinking he's the blasphemer. Friend, do you honor Christ? Do you give him the glory that he's due by keeping his word? Do you rejoice like Abraham did that he is God's lamb provided for you? If you rejoice in that, if you keep that, if you cling to that, then you honor the Son. And in honoring the Son, you honor the Father. And you will never, ever die. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we honor you this morning. You are glorious beyond the ability of our words to tell it. We praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the wonderful promise that is ours. That if we cling tightly to the the promise, the truth of who you are as our lamb, our lamb without blemish, slain for us, that in your grace we'll never see death. What a glorious, glorious promise. I pray that through the working of your Spirit this morning, that many will claim that promise rightfully that it will be theirs. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for the sake of His glory and honor. Amen. Would you please stand and let's sing in response.